This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Zneimer. We'll take a deeper dive into the recent independent review of Toronto Police's handling of missing persons cases with the author of a book about serial killer Bruce MacArthur. And then we'll celebrate National Volunteer Week as the head of Volunteer Canada talks about community organization needs and the changing roles of volunteers during COVID-19. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Zoomers who sleep six hours or less a night may be more likely to develop dementia in their late 70s. That according to research that followed nearly 8,000 people in Britain for about 25 years, starting when they were 50. The study found those who consistently reported sleeping six hours or less a night were about 30% more likely to be diagnosed with dementia nearly three decades later. Peru's former president has been banned from holding public office for 10 years after he jumped the queue to get a COVID shot. Martin Vizcarra was found guilty of influence peddling, collusion and making false declarations in relation to Peru's VIP vaccine scandal, which saw scores of ministers and public officials receive shots before they were publicly available in the country. That was a COVID-style drive-by birthday for Hester Ford in August. The oldest living American died in North Carolina this week. She was 115. Hester lived through the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, COVID, two world wars, and the dawn of the civil rights movement. She had 68 grandkids, 125 great-grandchildren, 120 great-great-grandchildren. An 80-year-old grandfather over in England has won over 203,000 Canadian in the Euro Millions after forgetting his glasses and unable to pick his regular numbers. Dennis Fawcett would normally use family birthdays for his weekly ticket, but without his glasses, he had to choose random numbers. He said it was the best decision of his life. Fawcett and his wife are planning to make over their home and garden with the winnings. The mystery of an unusual and mysterious animal lurking in a tree in the Polish city of Krakow has been solved. Animal welfare officials said people were afraid to open their windows, fearing it would jump into their homes. But a visit to the area revealed it was not a bird, nor even a reptile, but a croissant. Officials say the pastry was likely tossed out of a window to feed the birds. I'm Bob Kompsik, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An independent review recently found systemic discrimination contributed to deficiencies in a number of missing persons investigations conducted by Toronto Police. 
The review, led by former Judge Gloria Epstein, examined policies and procedures related to missing persons cases, as well as how officers investigated the disappearances of residents who were later found to have been killed. It focused on 10 cases, including the eight men murdered by serial killer Bruce MacArthur. Epstein says she found serious flaws in how missing persons cases, even beyond those at the center of the review, were investigated. For reaction, I spoke with Justin Ling, author of Missing from the Village, the story of Bruce MacArthur. There have been so many people who have come out and said, I don't think the police treated this disappearance seriously enough. And this report is is really vindication for so many of those concerns. For years, the police have insisted that every single missing person's case is treated the same way, regardless of immigration status or race or sexuality or gender. And again, I think I think this report proves that that's not what was happening, that there was a randomness, an arbitrariness, and, and an inherent discrimination that went into how police handled these cases. I have been digging into for years that I had pushback from the police on. I'll give you an example. We went really hard at the idea that, contrary to what police were saying, the the Project Houston, which was set up um, in 2012, and which police always insisted was set up to investigate these three disappearances. Well, we reported that, in fact, it was set up on a completely unrelated tip and that it was sort of the product of this moral panic around an online cannibalism ring. And I I reported that actually after that tip was excluded and all they had in front of them were three mysterious disappearances, that police actually reduced the budget and staffing of that investigation uh, despite some serious indication that there is still something wrong. Well, police always rejected that notion, saying, no, 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 we didn't, we didn't scale down the investigation. Well, this report proves conclusively they did. That when it came to a case of three missing gay men from the village, police dedicated two or three relatively junior officers and a minuscule budget and shut the investigation down when there were still leads to be followed. That, to me, is pretty damning stuff. And it really, I think, lays bare just how seriously the Toronto Police Service, as an institution, took these cases. What about as far as the recommendations? Which one, which ones are key to rectifying this type of approach by the police? So I think every single one of these 150 recommendations, many of which have sub-recommendations and implementation strategies, I think every single one is, is crucial to fixing the serious problems with how police handle missing persons investigations. It will have a knock-on effect of improving investigations overall. There's really good, serious recommendations in here on how to address a lot of the technological problems and the database problems, on how to break down silos between divisions, even within the Toronto Police Service. There's really, really crucial and practical strategies in this document for how uh, missing persons investigations can occur with cooperation from the community and uh, social groups uh, and social services, uh, as opposed to being a purely uh, police operation. But you know, the other part of your question was, you know, how will this 
potentially fix that relationship. And truth be told, I think they could implement every single one of these recommendations entirely and seriously and immediately and still have a serious crisis on their hands in terms of their relationship with the queer community. The reality is the continued policing of queer people, of drug users, of homeless people, of trans women, uh, trans people more broadly, sex workers, all of those things are going to continue injuring and, and, and fundamentally weakening any hope for a meaningful relationship between the Toronto Police Service and the queer community until there is a substantial sort of reckoning with the over-criminalization of those communities, I don't think you're going to really see a meaningful change more broadly. There's a phrase that I really like that was picked up by this report, and it describes the relationship really well. Right now, the queer community, you know, including a whole bunch of other communities in the city, you know, black folks, sex workers, so on and so forth, they are over-policed and yet underprotected and underserved. I think this report goes a long way towards fixing the underservice problem, but just by virtue of what the scope of, of the external review was, it's not addressing the over-policing part. That's going to require some serious action on the part of our politicians uh, in terms of the chief of police, the mayor, the premier, and the prime minister. Are you willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they'll act upon these recommendations? Yeah, uh, truth be told, I actually have a, a high degree of confidence that the Toronto Police Service is seriously and meaningfully going to engage with these recommendations because on almost every single instance, this is stuff they want to fix. You know, I, I really do believe that. I mean, the Toronto Police Service is not happy about the fact that it's underusing or, or misusing its own uh, database management tools, right? You know, they're not happy that people are going missing and you know, not being tracked adequately. So I, I think the benefit of this report is that it, it really does provide them a path forward to improving their own service and doing so, by the way, more cost-effectively uh, and, and more meaningfully. Uh, but I think to do the rest of the work that needs doing, it's going to require some proactive uh, you know, issues management, some proactive problem solving, because we can't wait until there's another serial killer or another spate of unsolved killings or more violence to finally keep reckoning with these issues. You can think back now 40 years, more than 40 years, to the bathhouse raids, to a, a broader conversation about how to repair the relationship between the police and the queer community. And in many respects, a lot of the things that needed to be done back then still haven't been done today. And I think it's time we finally grapple with that. Justin Ling, thank you very much for your, for your insight on this very important case and cases. Thanks for having me. That was Justin Ling, author of Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how the pandemic is affecting volunteering in Canada. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca.
Community organization needs and volunteer roles are changing rapidly as a result of the pandemic. The slogan of this year's National Volunteer Week, the value of one, the power of many. Volunteer Canada is a charity that helps to increase the giving of one's time. Its president is Paula Spivak. Paula, how has COVID-19 disrupted, impacted volunteering in this country? Well, like everything else in our life, certainly there has been a disruption and there have been many hardships and there have been been many wonderful innovations and heartwarming um, surges of generosity. So it's all there. Uh, As you probably remember, early on, um, many organizations had to quickly assess what to do with their volunteer programs. So in some cases, organizations uh, cancelled, closed, or postponed activities, whereas in other cases, especially for those uh, serving vulnerable people, they really had to expand and extend their services. And so because many of the volunteers who do help in home support services are older adults, and they needed to step away to keep themselves and others safe, there was an initial concern about how will we fill those needs. But what's awesome is that people just stepped up. People of all ages just stepped up and filled, uh, filled in and um, continued. Um, other organizations um, simply created um, and transitioned to virtual formats. So, for example, friendly visiting or tutoring or mentoring that was normally done in person was uh, done either by phone or by um, various platforms to do it virtually. And that took a while, but it uh, didn't take as long as one might have thought. So that's working well. And in other cases, it was simply a matter of creating ways to make things safer by lower touch, even though you know, activities were in person, um, but things were delivered in a lower touch, safer way. So lots of disruption, lots of innovation and lots of generosity. Still, after all these years, the telephone comforting for so many. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that really was the original virtual volunteering, wasn't it? When people did telephone reassurance and checked in on one another and just wanted to see how people were doing. Volunteering is associated with hospitals, so how have they been able to cope? Um, Well, yes, there is some volunteering in hospitals, and in many cases, as you know, um, hospitals did decide not to um, have volunteers come in during the pandemic. In other cases, um, there were some that were um, specifically screened and safety measures put in place regarding regular testing and so on, but that took a while. Um, but in many cases, that, that's going well. Still, there is, uh, you know, much fewer people volunteering in healthcare directly uh, because of the fact that um, there are some safety concerns. Many volunteers have stepped forward to help in vaccination clinics. They're greeting, they're helping with registration, and they're helping with the flow. Um, and that's really um, well appreciated and, and really is making a difference. I think other volunteers are continuing to do the mentoring and the tutoring and the one-to-one support through um, virtual means. Um, So that's also going well. Other volunteers are starting to prepare outdoor spaces, um, so in anticipation of more activity, but but just to make things more comfortable in in communities um, to be um, getting exercise and um, feeling more comfortable doing their their uh, laps or doing their um, morning walks with some meditation and Tai Chi in the parks and whatnot. So we're starting to see a lot of really wonderful 
outdoor activities being resumed with safety, of course. Can you give us any other examples of how people have pivoted and come up with maybe a unique way to volunteer during the pandemic? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that's quite neat is that um, people do find it relaxing to do um, crafts, for example. And I know that in the past there have been these these muffs that people have made, either crocheting or knitting, um, and it was typically uh, used for people with dementia where um, it is stimulating and comforting to have something for your hand. So these muffs were, um, if you picture a, a kind of a, a tube with different textures inside, perhaps something rubber, perhaps something soft, and so on. And so people have been making these for, uh, for people, and many hospitals and long-term care homes were accepting them because in, uh, especially during the time when people couldn't have visitors and they were really feeling isolated, there is something also comforting about, about the touch of your own hands and, and that, uh, that soft, uh, warm space. Uh, people have also been making other things, um, writing letters um, with, with their children that were distributed with um, Meals on Wheels delivery. Some other people were um, helping older adults with, with technology so that they could keep in touch or participate in activities. So lots of different interesting things. The other thing I found interesting is people helping organizations host let's say, a virtual annual general meeting, something that that organization may find overwhelming, but people who are comfortable with technology and have a great personality are able to host by managing the technology, but also by helping with the flow of the meeting. So lots of interesting things. Anything else you'd care to leave us with? Maybe how people can get more involved in volunteering? Well, local volunteer centers around the country are the best way uh, to find out what the needs are, and you can find those centers at volunteer.ca or in your local community. And the other thing is, it's National Volunteer Week, which I think is the reason why you're covering this important area. And what's very important is for us to recognize the value of one and the power of many, which is the theme this year, and the value of one, every single act, small or big, that anyone does, really makes a difference, but also the power when we work together, either as people, as different organizations. It's, it's really quite amazing. And we celebrate all those who have helped all year, but as importantly, we really need to recognize and celebrate those who have stepped away from volunteering to keep safe and keep others safe because they're doing their part as well. And uh, we know that uh, 80% of the volunteers that we surveyed said that as soon as it's safe to do do so, they are back. Paula Spivak, President, CEO of Volunteer Canada. Thank you. Thank you. That was Paula Spivak, President, CEO of Volunteer Canada. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.